So it's, uh, what, it's like Kubrick month, I guess. Alamo Drafthouse is doing this thing. And look, at this episode, this podcast is not sponsored by Alamo Drafthouse or anything, but I happen to be a fan. I happen to enjoy their establishments. And uh, they're doing this thing for all of September of this year. They're showing Kubrick films. And I knew right away that this was something I had to... I had to check it out because I've never seen, other than Eyes Wide Shut, I've never seen any of his films on the big screen. And while some of them, I feel like, aren't necessarily an experience for the big screen, like you could still enjoy them and get a lot of meaning out of them on a television, some of these films definitely need to be on the big screen. You need to have that experience. And so that's where... I said, okay, I got to do this. So obviously 2001, had to see that. Got a chance to go to a screening and check that out. And the film, of course, looks just amazing. It looks immaculate. And on the big screen, some of the moments in the film are, I mean, they do have more of an impact. They are something you can't help but sit with and think through what the filmmakers are trying to do here, what the story is, what the meaning is. You've got the sequence where they're the, what were they like the Neanderthals or whatever, the, the early man, right? And well, there's no dialogue. First of all, there's not a dynamic quality to it. Like the camera doesn't move. A lot of times the action on screen isn't very lively. It's pretty static. But you're just watching. You're, you're really just an observer. There's not a lot of meaning to get until the monolith shows up. And that's when you start to understand, oh, okay, this is a kind of a higher being, a higher intelligence. There's some new entity that has entered the chat. You know what I'm saying? So now you can see where it's important to, to, to just have it on the big screen because you get a sense of being almost alone with these creatures in this time and place. And the impact, it's, it's jarring when that monolith shows up. And then, of course, the cut to space. And that even takes on a different quality because, look, I mean... It's a film about a, a, a man who takes a flight to the moon and then from there starts a mission going to Jupiter, right? Okay, so the first part where he's going to the moon, well, he's going to the space station, then he's going to the moon. None of that was possible and barely imagined in 1967, 68, when this film was being made. To be able to depict it on screen how do we show something that we cannot possibly actually capture? We knew enough about the moon and space, and NASA did have its space program already going at that point in the, throughout the 60s, but to be on the moon surface and then to be beyond that, that was something we didn't have experience with. So that's interesting to see it depicted on screen and then on a big screen, the way that it's so clean and so precise and flawless, really. And yet, 
looking at it now, I mean, you have a different context to watch the film now with so much that has changed in filmmaking and technology and all that. But to look at it and just say, how did they do this? I mean, how, did, how would they do it now? That's one question. But how did they do it back in the late 60s for this film with the technology and the, and the methods that were available? So there's so much that you, you have to look at and kind of just be puzzled by. Like besides the story, besides what's happening on screen, but like, how did they do this? And so there's even, you know, uh, it's funny. I, I watched a, I say I watched, I listened to part of an interview with the comedian Louis CK. And I don't know why it just showed up in my YouTube thing. And it was him kind of going through the film and breaking down his, questions about it from a technical standpoint, but also like the, the important parts of the film. And it's exactly, it's on the nose of like what is so kind of magical and mystical really about this film. Not only the mind of the people who made it, but the techniques and the technology that was available and then what it has meant to other, to the audience. Right. And so to me, it's a film that I'm very familiar with. I've seen it many times over the years, but only on television. And to see it on the big screen, ah, oh man, it really is just, um, it's a different experience. And so I'm glad I did it. Besides that, I mean, I have seen, I went back and watched a couple of other films. I watched The Clockwork Orange, kind of revisit that. I haven't seen that in maybe 10 or more years. And... It's not really controversial in my eyes because so much has come after that film over the years that um, I don't want to say it's mild, but it, it, it's not as explicit or graphic as I think most people maybe remember or imagine. Now, it certainly was in 1971 and for many years after, but you know, films that have come out since then especially when you dip into like horror genre in terms of graphic violence or, or whatever. Um, there are films that have really pushed the envelope much further than this. I think what Clockwork Orange did was it used those things to kind of get you to pay attention. But of course it had, and, and it's based on the novel, of course, but it had a much deeper intent with the idea of conditioned responses to violence and how governments or institutions might try to control that or shape that. And how does that really work? Is that actually, is it actually possible to rehabilitate somebody who just is a violent, uh, a criminal and to whose benefit in the end, you know, all those kind of deeper meanings I mean, we're following Alex and his wild story, his young life, but the the backdrop of it all is the state and the prison system and how they treat a person like this. That's my take on it. And so it's interesting to just go back and watch that, maybe with a little more context, a little more uh, life behind me. Because I'm sure that when I first saw the film, the original thought was, oh, this is a film that's really like, it's a gnarly one, you know? It's been banned 
and it's been highly controversial. It's sometimes not even available to find, to watch. And so I just wanted to see, like, what is it? It was just more of a curiosity thing. It's more of a prurient type of film experience. If that's what you're looking for, there, there is that, you know, there's sex, there's violence, there's language, there's all sorts of subversive images and, and ideas in it. And yet, once you maybe have a little more experience in life or mature or whatever, you start to see beneath that and see the layers under it and and take away more a deeper meaning. And I'm sure that a lot of people probably picked that up right away. I, I kind of got the idea, but it wasn't like the the thing that I went that I started the film for. I just didn't know. And now looking back on it after all this time, yeah, okay, I see it. There's there's more to it. So, you know, that being part of this run that I'm doing of Kubrick films, I found this documentary on, uh, I think it was on Max. And it's called A Forbidden Orange. And now this is a, a film, it's a documentary about a, a, a group in Spain that held a festival. Because remember, at this time in the 70s, Spain was under um, a different type of government. You know, they were under basically a dictatorship still. Um, and so they had very strict, very conservative rules about films and art. And it was a real tight government control of culture and what was permissible, what was obscene, all that kind of stuff. And so this film was banned like immediately. And this, this documentary of Forbidden Orange goes into that, like the film's release and then how it was received around the world, different countries. Some people weren't having it. Some people didn't really understand it. Here in Spain, it was a matter of the government was never going to allow this. And yet there was the possibility that it could be screened at a very specific festival to almost uh, proof these films, these problematic films or controversial films. So the idea that this might have a chance to be screened in Spain, all of a sudden it became a high demand ticket. It, it was an interesting look at how this film was received in another part of the world that had a very different culture at the time. And I, I mean, it even has a segment where it, it includes an interview with Kubrick himself. I'm trying to remember where this town was. Uh, it was called the Valladolid Festival. And this was like 1975. So it wasn't the year that the film was released, which was 1971, but this was a few years later. Spanish government was coming around to like, okay, well, maybe we need to understand other things that are happening in the world and screen them, let's say. So this was an, uh, this was an opportunity to do that. But of course, because it was such a, um, I don't know, it was a curiosity, but it was also kind of a coveted thing. Like this thing that may only happen one time. And so 
young people, people who were maybe more interested in this type of, uh, uh, let's say, content, this type of art, they were just fighting tooth and nail to get to it. But once they did, of course, you know, look, I mean, the idea of withholding something or banning something or censoring, you only make the demand for it go up. Because human curiosity, it just works that way. It's like, oh, you tell me I can't see that. Well, now I want to see it even more. And so this, uh, it, it had an interesting effect. I mean, the, the documentary goes into that. Once this film was shown, like, how did this impact people and the culture there? And ultimately, it, it I don't want to say it pushed things forward, but it it was part of that wave of Spain coming out of this Franco regime and moving towards a democratic government. And so maybe it was just, hey, the right film at the right time or whatever. But the, the documentary even does something interesting where, you know, a lot of the people that are being interviewed or, or talked about in the film are, are from that era. But later in the documentary, they do ask younger people about the film. Like, what do they know about it? And then they screen it for them and they get the reactions. And it's something that occurred to me the last time I saw this, many years ago now, but could they make a film like this today? And I, I, I really don't think so. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be made by, you know, a, a major film studio at this point. It would have to be some fringe or in the independent effort, you know, to, to get something like this off the ground. And, but then also like, how would this affect people, young people today, let's say people who kind of grew up during that era in the seventies or even in the eighties, it was a different time and things were seen differently. Some things were accepted that aren't accepted today. Uh, and some things are accepted today that weren't back then, right? So things have changed. Times change, people change, all that. So how would this kind of film be received by people who have none of that history, none of that background, and come to this really cold, really clean? And it's interesting to watch some of those those reactions where some people just couldn't hang with it, or some people found it even funny. Look, it does have some comedy in it. It's really dark, really dry wit that it plays with, but it it does have some humor. But of course, it is a very serious kind of film. So I, I thought it was an interesting documentary, just one to kind of look back at the film, maybe through a different lens, but also to see how it maybe played in different parts of the world. And even... How would someone much younger from a different generation, how would they react to a film like this? That's what actually drove me to watch the film again. Because I saw this documentary, I said, okay, now I just want to actually watch the film and go through that again. So that was the next one up. Other than that, I watched um, another documentary called Kubrick by Kubrick. And... That was, oh man, where did I see that? I can't even tell you where I saw it now. But I feel like it was on, I don't know, like Tubi or something like that. And 
you know, I wasn't sure what this would be either because there is a documentary that I want to see that I, I haven't yet, but I, I'll kind of look for that and see what I can find. But this one, Kubrick by Kubrick, it's, it's a shorter documentary. It's not super long. It's about an hour. But it's, it does an interesting thing where it frames the whole documentary around interviews or, or parts of interviews from Kubrick himself. So you actually hear him talking about his films with his own uh, insights and his own thoughts on how they were received or what what challenges he had in making them or you know, the ideas that he was trying to convey. And the cool thing about it, and it, it really kind of puzzled me at first, is it's all shot either using archival footage from interviews or photos and this recreated, uh, I guess, set from 2001. You know, later in the film in 2001, when Dave Bowman arrives at, he kind of transcends and he arrives at the mansion, let's say, with old Dave Bowman, you know, that whole part of the film. Well, this documentary, it's kind of set in that place. Like you see posters of all of Kubrick's films in the those rooms, in those walls, those white, kind of elaborately designed and, de- and decorated halls and rooms and stuff. It's cool. And I almost thought, like, did they just, is this like a CGI recreation? Is this like miniatures? And I think they actually went and built this set or found this set somehow. I don't know. Anyway, it it's interesting to frame it all that way. But the other thing is to hear Kubrick himself go through all of his films and give thoughts. And these were all taken from uh, an interview or collection of interviews with a uh, journalist that, uh, that sat in with him. And from what I can tell, it was sometime between Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut. So maybe in the late 80s, early 90s. Because he talks about films before Eyes Wide Shut. And Eyes Wide Shut, of course, he he passed away as it was being completed. And he doesn't really talk about it specifically. He talks it more maybe generally or in a, in a way that's like looking forward to the film. So I feel like this, that kind of helps you place when this was done. And uh, it's, it's an interesting look. I mean, one, to hear the man himself, because I'm always kind of sideways surprised when I hear him speak on you know, interviews and recordings because the, for me at least, the just image I have of Stanley Kubrick is that there's a photo of him where he's got the shaggy beard and the shaggy hair and the glasses. And he's kind of looking over his glasses with his eyebrows kind of arched up and he looks angry he looks grumpy he looks kind of curmudgeonly you know and i just always put a voice to that face that is not his voice (laughs) and so to hear him actually speak and and talk about his films in a very thoughtful and an insightful way uh it it's a little bit surprising to just get through the voice but then to hear like there's a calmness to it and there's a 
uh, a pensiveness to it that sometimes I forget, like this is the person who made these films that are sometimes disturbing, sometimes challenging, a lot of times very mature and R-rated. And here's someone who doesn't, uh, doesn't kind of perpetrate that myth in person. And it's interesting to look at it in that context, like in the, in the, in the way that you have to separate the art from the artist sometimes. And sometimes you have to do that because the artist is just an asshole or a scumbag. But here I feel like I could see where Kubrick was maybe more of a gentle and, and more calculated type of person and his maybe uh, his darker side or his uh, more aggressive side came out on film, came out in his work. That certainly seems to be the accounts that m- most people who've worked with him that I've seen, uh, that they sort of relate is that, no, he was not, you know, a bastard. He was actually very patient and very collaborative. And so to see that, okay, well, the work is where the, the, uh, the harder edge comes out, you know? And it makes sense. It makes sense. And I actually like that. It, in a way, this documentary, it gave me a, a, not just insights about the films and what he was trying to do, but it gave me a different appreciation for his approach, just uh, philosophically, to how he conducted himself, but then also what he, how he put that into the work. So it's an interesting watch. It's really good. And going through all those films and, you know, it kind of ends with him talking about, I, th- I think it's Eyes Wide Shut was the last film he talks about. It kind of jumps around. It doesn't go like chronological order necessarily. But there is a moment where he talks about Eyes Wide Shut and... So that was what led me to watch that film. I went back and watched that again. And, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day. You know, actually, it was a a guest uh, from a previous episode from the Houston Latino Film Festival. I was talking to Pedro, and uh, he said, um, you know, there's some of these films, you got to see them on the big screen. And I said, well, you know, eyes wide shut. I just feel like, not because it's like, you know, super sexualized or just very much more explicit. I mean, that's not, it's not as embarrassing as I guess I would think, but it's more because underneath that, again, that's a film that goes into territory about relationships and fidelity and obsession and guilt and all those kinds of things. And like that, look, if if you're in a relationship, if you're in a marriage, all those things hit deep. And if you've ever had issues with that or trouble with that or whatever, if you ever, you know, those things have ever crossed your mind or you've had to confront in some way, that film, it really hits you on a much deeper level. It's not like, oh, I just feel awkward because there's a lot of naked people on the screen and I'm sitting in a room full of other people. It's weird. No, it's it's more than that. It's like, man, I feel like, do people know what I've had to deal with or what I felt 
and how this film is kind of hitting me there. And maybe they've had to deal with it. Maybe people, you know, it's like, it. it's one of those, it's a very personal kind of intimate uh, experience watching that film. If you really take it for everything that it's trying to say. So, and that's one that I figured, okay, I did see it on the big screen when it came out. And I didn't quite grasp it in the ways that I do now. Like it was, again, it was more like, oh, ooh, let's see what's going to happen. It's going to be really raunchy, kind of crazy film. It's not that at all. It's actually much more uh, haunting than than I remember watching it now. Like it, it does give me a lot more to think about and a lot more to honestly kind of be afraid of. And of course, you know, watching it, in 2023 there are parts of the film that i feel like the the reactions of the characters i feel like well that wouldn't necessarily translate today like i don't know that i don't know that the let's say the guilt or the presumed shame that bill harfer has about his either his experience in reality or not reality, in his dreams even, I don't know that he would be so like mortified that people would know this. You know, I, I, I kind of think, I kind of think in today's era of people putting so much just out into the open, like that kind of thing doesn't really... I don't, people don't really bat an eye at that as much. Now, unless it kind of hits you in a, in a more substantial way, like your job or your relationships or some, you, you have bigger stakes other than I'm, I'm, I'm about to be embarrassed. I, I think people have really changed their <laughs> approach on what embarrasses them and what they might be ashamed of. Hey, you know, there's some people rolling through life nowadays. They got no shame. I've been to Walmart. I know. <laughs> but I think this film is, uh, in a way, it's kind of a time capsule. But I think some of the other elements about what it means to be in a relationship and what it means to be uh, committed to that relationship and not lose sight of it those things, uh, those are probably going to be universal. So, um, uh, I, I think it's interesting to watch that film through different eyes, let's say later in life and maybe have a different appreciation for it. It is like, honestly, it's, it's up to the top of my list of Kubrick films, just because it really does strike a very deep nerve. And, you know, there's some things I would maybe change about it or would have liked to seen done a little differently, but it's such a unique type of film. Uh, everything from the way it's shot to the casting of it. I mean, the, the stunt casting is just wild of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. I mean, this was like the power couple in the 90s. And of course now... No longer a thing. And yet, to see Tom Cruise, who is still like 
top of the box office. I mean, here, this was really, he was riding that wave. And now, you know, it's a little different to look at this film almost 25 years later and think, here's a man who's made an, uh, uh, who's made a career out of doing wild shit on screen, like stunts and action. But here in the 90s, this film, something like Magnolia even, where he was really going to a, pla- a different place, a place where he could do these deep, dramatic, very personal roles. And I don't know. I don't know what the, the change, what happened there. Maybe this film was the one that was like, I don't, I can't do that. That is putting too much on the line, like personally. Somehow hanging off a building is less uh, less scary, I guess. I don't know. I, I have no idea. One thing I did find, I was just looking like, oh yeah, was there any like interviews or, or, or whatever? I found this podcast, which I don't know is still going because I think the last episode was like two years ago now, but it was a podcast all about actors who have met Tom Cruise. And two of the episodes are with Vanessa Shaw, who plays Domino, who it's one scene in the film and it's kind of a low key scary ass scene for a multitude of reasons. But ultimately, like what happens to their character, it's kind of scary to think how that could have gone. Anyway, the podcast itself is with her as a guest, and they're talking about the filmmaking experience, working with Kubrick, working with Tom Cruise. But it was interesting to hear them kind of break down the film in a way that is removed a little bit from the era, from the time, like 19, what was that, 1999. But to hear some people maybe come to the film fresh without expectations of what Kubrick has done, but then also to just appreciate from the acting point of view and the filmmaking point of view, that was interesting. But this film, I mean, you know, I had someone ask me recently, it was a few episodes ago when the Oppenheimer episode came out, someone asked me if like Nolan was like my top, my Mount Rushmore of directors. And uh, I had to think about that for a second. You know, my answer in the moment was, well, top 10. Let's say top 10. But Kubrick is one of those, for as few films as he did in his career, I think he did, what, 13 films, like features? I think just pound for pound, like, you know, the hit ratio was much higher here. Like, in terms of success and in terms of execution, Now, that's not to say uh, Christopher Nolan is not on the same track, because I think almost all of his films I'm down with, they are 100% quality. But the, the interesting question for me is, will those films hold up over time? And, and I just don't know. You know, something like uh, Memento, I feel like is uh is a worthwhile film and it and it still works today. Part of it is because of the gimmick of going backwards. But even the the subtext of the film about a man dealing with loss and dealing with guilt 
that's something that I look, that's honestly, that's like all of Nolan's films in a way. But, you know, Kubrick here is a, is a character who, a character, a director who deals with a different type of story, different types of themes, and in totally different ways. I mean, a man who goes from making 2001 to A Clockwork Orange to Barry Lyndon, which I, I got to see that one in its entirety, to The Shining, to Full Metal Jacket, to Eyes Wide Shut, like he's all over the place in terms of times, in terms of settings, in terms of characters. And the reason I brought up that other podcast, um, Meeting Tom Cruise, I think, was because there was a theory in there. And I don't remember who said it. I don't even know if they originated it, but I like it. I, I, I get it, is that Kubrick is a, is a filmmaker, an artist who was fascinated with machines and when those machines break. And you could look at all of those films I just named, and there's elements of that throughout all of them. You know, the way a system works, the way a, a family functions, the way a machine, like an actual literal, like a computer malfunctions, right? Like that theme kind of runs throughout a lot of films. And so that's an interesting way to do that is to focus on one, let's say type of story, but set it in all these different, ways these different genres the different times and for me that means that's just a much more versatile approach and let's say like someone like nolan doesn't do that because he he also does things where you go to the prestige but then you go to batman but then you go to oppenheimer and all the ones in between interstellar tenant i mean these films inception of course they're dealing with similar things, but they're still in this slightly science fiction, slightly fantastic world. I mean, the only one that I think really, I, I, I think stands out as like not truly a Nolan film because it was a remake. And I think it was early in his career is Insomnia. But even then you could see like there's at the center of that film is a man dealing with guilt. So, I don't know. Um, Christopher Nolan, Mount Rushmore. Mm, maybe I'm not sure yet. Time needs, uh, we just need a little more time on that. Plus, come on, got to see what else he's going to do with Stanley Kubrick. I mean, we have kind of closed the book in terms of we're never getting another Kubrick film. And we got AI, which was probably the closest we'll ever get. Uh, but even that, I mean, you, you can tell like, that's not the way Kubrick would have done that. Maybe it's the same story, but the execution was very much a, a different filmmaker. So anyway, um, that's, that's kind of a recap of some Kubrick stuff lately. Next week's my birthday, so I'm just going to chill. And uh, we'll see you around or watch something new. <laughs>